Well, we are in the home stretch of our study of the book of Colossians. Uh, we can see the light, or at least I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. I hope to wrap this up, Lord willing, by the end of, the end of April. Uh, I first studied the book of Colossians, I was doing the math this morning, 13 years ago. I had read it uh, prior to that date and certainly heard an occasional sermon out of the book of Colossians, but uh, really studied it in detail for the first time 13 years ago. I was lecturing at a Bible college and taught on the book of Colossians in an evening class. And so as I've returned to it again over the past few months, I've been able to go back and look at my notes from 13 years ago and relieved to see I still agree with most of what I thought back then. That's a good sign. Uh, but something that uh, grabbed my attention as I reflected on that course, teaching it all those years ago, um, there were things I missed, uh, little emphases here and there. And one thing I did, I did stress when I taught that course, but perhaps not to the degree I should have, was how prominent uh, Christ, and this shouldn't surprise us, how prominent Christ stands in this epistle. You do the math, if my math is correct, I might be off by one or two. There are 95 verses in this book, book of Colossians. Subtract 10 or 11 uh, toward the end in which Paul is just sending greetings to a bunch of people. Subtract those, you're left with 85. And I think in 55 of the 85 verses, Paul mentions at least once Christ. It is a very Christ-centered epistle. Everything Paul says, he derives it back to his understanding of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I trust this has been evident as we've made our way through the first couple of chapters. It is certainly evident in the first four verses of chapter 3. Let me begin by reading those for us. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so Paul, in those few verses, takes us on a breathtaking, spiritual journey from the past to the present to the future. And he roots this spiritual journey in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so speaking personally, there was a season in my life when I was without Christ, right? Unknown to me. A season in my life when I was outside of Christ. And then I experienced the effectual call, Christ calling me through the Holy Spirit. I repented of my sin. I believed in the Lord Jesus. And at that moment, the Spirit made me one with Christ. And Paul, that's the starting point. That was the starting point of my spiritual journey. And he reminds us of this starting point in these verses. He goes to the past and he says, look, Christians, uh, there was a time when you died with Christ. And there was a time when you were resurrected with Christ. That was the moment I was born again. 
The moment I was born again, I was made one with Christ. And because I was made one with Christ, I am one with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. His death is my death. His burial is my burial. His resurrection is my resurrection. That means a whole lot of things for my sin. First of all, it means that the penalty of my sin is paid in full. Why? Because Christ died for my sin. Christ bore the penalty, the punishment for my sin. I am now one with him. Therefore, his death is my death, his burial is my burial, his resurrection is my resurrection. That means the penalty is paid in full. I've paid the penalty. Not me, myself, but the fact that I am one with the Lord Jesus who paid it on my behalf. Praise God, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But not only does my union with Christ have implications for the penalty of my sin, it has implications for the power of my sin. It has such a grip on me. But that power has been broken because I am now one with Christ in his death, his burial, and resurrection. The life I now live, I live in Christ Jesus. And the Spirit of God has broken that power of sin. That's the past. That is the start of this spiritual journey. And then Paul then brings us into the present, where I am right now. And he tells us in the third verse that my life is hidden with Christ in God. Tremendous phrase. Beautiful phrase. Deep in its significance. My life as a Christian is now hidden with Christ in God. Well, it implies firstly my identity. It tells me something about who I am, doesn't it? I am a Christian because I am a follower of Christ. I am one with Christ, therefore I take that name Christian. It is a new identity, a new identity in him because I am one with him again in his death, his burial, and resurrection. It also implies security, doesn't it? My life is hidden with Christ in God. Yes, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, praise God, there is nothing in heaven or on earth that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Absolute, unwavering security. But also it implies secrecy, doesn't it? My life is hidden with Christ in God. You sitting there right now, I think I took us down this road last week. You sitting there right now do not see me as I really am. That's a wonderful thought. Tremendous thought. Gives me great encouragement every day. You do not see who I really am. And Christians, I do not see who you really are. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. Positionally, we are already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Positionally, God has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But right now, we don't really see it. We don't fully grasp, we don't fully see, we don't fully behold who we are, what we really are in Christ. It is hidden. But Paul proceeds on this journey from the past to the present to the future. And he tells us in verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, he's coming again. And when he comes again, what's going to happen? Then you also will appear with him in glory. There'll be tremendous resurrection from the dead. A tremendous renovation of my humanity, body and soul. I will be like him, for I will see him as he is. What is hidden now? will be fully revealed. And so Paul begins this third chapter laying this wonderful foundation, this journey from the past to the present to the future. Paul's practical teaching when it comes to living the Christian life, his methodology is very simple. It's it's simply this. 
If we grasp, basically, let me, let me speak from Paul's vantage point. If you grasp what I've just said, that's what Paul is effect, effectively saying here. If you get your minds around who you are in Christ, if you really get it, I mean really get it, uh, the past, the present, the future, if you understand it, you grasp it, you've taken it to heart, then it is only reasonable, right? It is only logical. It is only rational. It only makes sense that you seek the things that are above. That you set your mind on things that are above. If you get it, who you are in Christ, past, present, future, then reasonably, logically speaking, you will orient your life. You will live your life according to your identity. In Christ. That's his point. And then all he does, beginning in verse 5, going all the way to the fourth chapter, verse 6, is give us a sweeping vision of the Christian life. He shows us how this plays out. He shows us what this looks like. We dare not jump in at verse 6. We dare not jump in at verse 12. We dare not jump in at verse 17. We dare not jump in at verse 25. We dare not jump in at chapter 4, verse 1, or verse 5, or verse 6, unless we get the first four verses. If you jump in without getting those first four verses, all you're left with is morality, and morality will not save you. We are after Christian morality. We are after morality, a way of living that is based upon, rooted in our transformative relationship New identity in Christ. And so everything he says, beginning in verse 5, again through to verse 6 of chapter 4, flows out of those first four verses, must be interpreted in the context of those first four verses, must be understood in terms of who we are in Christ, past, present, future. I'm going to break these verses down, I think, into five sections. Don't hold me to it. It might be six but at least five sections, bite-sized sections. The first we're going to look at today, beginning in the fifth verse through to the 11th verse. And so follow along as I read this section for us. Put to death, notice this next word, therefore. That word drives us back where? Into the first four verses. There's proof of what I was just saying. Everything he says flows out of the first four verses. He's going to give us a series of commands, but these commands all follow that word, therefore, 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 in light of who you are, in light of who you are in Christ, past, present, future, therefore, here's where he begins, put to death. What is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator here. There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in 
all. And so there's a commandment at the outset of the fifth verse, put to death, kill. That's basically what Paul is telling us to do. He's telling us to kill. He's telling us to put to death. That leads to three obvious questions. If we're going to do that, we need to be clear on these. What? Number one, what are we supposed to kill? Number two, why should we kill it? And number three, how do we kill it? He answers each of those three questions in the verses I've just read. But before we get to them, what, why, and how, I want you to notice again, just focus in, draw your attention to something extremely obvious at the outset of verse 5. Put to death. Do you know what that is? That is a commandment. Oh, we don't like that word. That is a commandment. It is to be obeyed or disobeyed. Now, I want to pause here. I'm not sure for how long, but we're going to pause here. I want to do something before we get to the what, the why, and the how. I want us just to dwell on this reality that what we have here is a commandment. And the reason I want to dwell upon this is because I think our acknowledgement of that fact corrects a potential, potential, I'll just say potential, imbalance in our thinking. A potential imbalance. Actually, it corrects a couple. I'm only going to consider one, though. An imbalance in our thinking. What imbalance am I talking about? The imbalance is this, and I pray, hear me out from the beginning to the end. The imbalance is this, the notion that I am supposed to discern God's will for my life. Hmm. The notion that I'm supposed to discern God's will for my life. Does God want me to take that job? Does God want me to marry that young woman? Does God want me to purchase that house? Does God want me to move to that town? Many of us go through life trying to discern the will of God. What does God want me to do? What is God telling me to do? What is God giving me a a sense of peace indicating that I'm supposed supposed to do this? And I want to suggest that it has led to an unhealthy imbalance in our thinking. As a matter of fact, I'll suggest that in many cases it has led, it has resulted in downright spiritual anxiety, and unnecessarily so. Now, I need to explain that, don't I? It's where I live for 20 years, every day getting up. What does God want me to do today? Am I supposed to wear that or not wear this? Am I supposed to talk to that person or not talk to that person? Am I supposed to go here? Am I supposed to go there? And trying to make decisions and going through life making decisions, trying to discern the will of God. And sadly, it's where many people live. And sadly, it leads to an unhealthy state and an unnecessary state of spiritual anxiety. Let me explain it by affirming six truths. And hear me out right through to the end, please. First is this. First thing we need to grasp. God's will is twofold. Have you got that? God's will is twofold. Here are the words of Deuteronomy 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of His law. And so there we read of secret things, and we read of revealed things. Hidden things, revealed things. And as we read Scripture, Scripture testifies to this, that God actually has two wills. When we speak of his will, we can be referring to one of two things. We can be referring to his secret 
will. The secret things belong to the Lord. Or we could be referring to his revealed will. His secret or hidden will is simply his decrees. What God has decreed. He has ordained everything that's come to pass. And that will is hidden. It is secret. Then there is his revealed will, his promises and his precepts. He has revealed them in his word, the scriptures. And so is everyone clear on that? When we speak of God's will, there is a twofold will of God, his secret will and his revealed will. Second point is this. This is really going to test you. You need to think deeply here. I'm going to pause just for effect. It's going to be extremely difficult. Are you ready? God's secret will is called secret for a reason. Wow. Can you guess what it is? It's secret. God's hidden will is called hidden for a reason. We are never commanded. We are never even encouraged in Scripture to try to discern God's secret will. Never. We are never encouraged to discern it, figure it out. It is called secret because it is indeed secret. Third point is this. God's revealed will is for us. What is his revealed will? Micah chapter 6, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? The Bible is full of God's revealed will, His precepts and His promises. We could go to the Ten Commandments. We could turn to Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That revealed will is for us. That's what we should preoccupy ourselves with. That is what should consume our time and our energy and even our anxiety. That is what we should preoccupy our thoughts and our desires. What has God actually revealed in the Bible? In terms of his precepts and promises. And how do his precepts and promises regulate my life? Fourth point is this. God doesn't have an extra will that we are called to discern. If we are looking for a recipe for making decisions, we are looking for the wrong thing. Now, there are two more points. Don't worry, I'm going to clarify that. If we are looking for a recipe for making decisions, we are actually looking for the wrong thing. We're emphasizing the wrong thing. 13, 14 years ago, a young man came to me. I can't remember the exact details of the conversation, but it went something like this. He was looking for counsel. He wanted to know whether or not it was God's will that he take a certain job. So he entered my office, sat down, Oh, I've been struggling with this for weeks, and I'm just trying to discern God's will. I just, want, I just want to know what God wants me to do. I just want to know if I'm supposed to take this job or not take this job. Can you help me? Do you know what my response was to him? Quote the Ten Commandments. He furrowed his brow and stared at me. What are you talking about? Quote the Ten Commandments. Quote the Ten Commandments. Something about idols. They're bad. Sabbath. Supposed to keep it. Is that still for us? I'm not even sure. No murdering. uh, No adulterating. No lying. No stealing. Six. 
No drinking, no smoking, no dancing. Nine. I'm missing one. I'm missing one. And then you know what I then said to him very lovingly? You nincompoop. Very lovingly. I wouldn't use that exact word, but I said basically what I was saying. How dare you be so presumptuous to probe the secret will of God when you don't even know the revealed will of God? We need to focus on the right things. Focus our attention. The revealed things belong to us. They are ours. His precepts and his promises. Now, I'm going to build on that because it leaves a couple of nagging questions, and I hope these last couple of points answer them. Number five, God expects us to make decisions by exercising wisdom. That's what he expects. He expects us to make decisions by exercising wisdom, biblical wisdom. And so the young woman is perplexed. Should I marry that young man, right? Some of us have been there. Or the young man is equally perplexed. Should I marry that young woman? I'm just trying to discern God's will. Here we go, right? And this can go on for weeks, months, maybe years. I just want to know God's will. I just want God to make it plain. What I'm suggesting is this. It's the wrong approach. We make these decisions exercising using biblical wisdom. The question to ask is not, how do I probe into and get connected to God's secret will? The question is this, God has revealed his will. Am I living, is my life orchestrated according to his revealed will, whereby I'm cultivating biblical wisdom, and I'm able to answer a very simple question. I'm able to do a very simple thing, which is discern between good and bad. And so should I marry that young man? The question is not, what is God's will here and how can I figure it out? The question is this, is it good? That's the only question you need to ask. Is it good? Is he good? The young man. Right? This is just an example off the top of my head, but it's probably quite relevant. Is he good? What do you mean by that? Can he look after himself? How does he treat his mother? Uh, does he love the Bible? Or is this a man who yearns? after God's Word? Is he in God's Word? Is he going to be able to teach me God's Word? Does he have it together? Is he good? Am I good, says the young lady? Am I maturing? Am I growing? How's my knowledge of God's Word? Would we be good together? Would we be good parents together? What do my parents, assuming they're believers, what do they think as to whether or not that young man is good? What is that older couple over there who's been married 40 years, 50 years? Do they think this is good? That is exercising biblical wisdom in simply discerning between good and bad. Sixth point is this. God cultivates this kind of wisdom in us as we submit to his revealed will. We've come full circle then back to Colossians chapter 3. God cultivates wisdom in us as we submit to his revealed will. Turn back just for a moment. Colossians chapter 1. Oh, we were here a few months ago. And look at what Paul writes in the ninth verse of Colossians 1. He's praying. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of 
his will. God's secret will, if you answer yes, you're wrong. He is not praying that we might somehow get connected and in tune with God and able to figure out what he has not revealed. That somehow we'd be able to probe the caverns of God's secret decrees and be able to figure out what he wants, what he has determined when it comes to every detail of our lives. That's not where Paul's going here. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. It is his revealed will. In all spiritual wisdom, there's your word, spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why, Paul? Verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's what we are to preoccupy ourselves with. What he gives us now, beginning in chapter 3, verse 5, all the way through to chapter 4, verse 6, is a pretty clear and concise revelation of that knowledge of God's will with which we are to be filled. You see the connections here? Are you connecting the dots? I want to know God's will. Then find out God's will, what he's actually revealed. Orient your life accordingly. Be filled with the knowledge of his will. Producing what? Spiritual wisdom and understanding. Producing what? A walk that is a life lived in a manner that is actually worthy of the Lord. Pleasing to him. A life that actually bears fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And I guarantee you that as we live that kind of life, biblical wisdom kicks in. And as we face decisions, we exercise discernment between what is good, what is bad in the context of what God has revealed. And so what we have now, beginning in chapter 3, verse 5, again through chapter 4, verse 6, is, in this context anyway, confined to this book, a revelation of God's will. God's will for us. And it's a series of commands, a series of precepts, and we're to be filled with these things. We're to orient our lives here, and every decision we make can be filtered through What Paul says packed into these, what is it, 25 verses or so. And so we're looking at this first one. Here it is, put to death. We're ready now for our three questions. What to kill, why to kill it, how to kill it. What? What's he talking about? Read on in verse 5. What is earthly in you? He gives us a list here in the fifth verse. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. There's a progression, and it's intentional. He begins where? With deeds, sexual immorality. It's one word in the Greek, pornaya, where we get our word pornography from. So it has a rather despicable heritage, that term. It actually comes from the Greek, sexual immorality. He's speaking there of deeds, and then he progresses where? Into the realm of thought. Impurity, uncleanness, if you like, in thought. And then he progresses where? Into the realm of the heart, desires. And he really spends some time here. He gives us three expressions, three terms. Passion, evil desire, and covetousness. He's still thinking in terms of sexuality. Covetousness. So he's moved from deeds to thoughts to desires And he keeps going, and now we've reached the pinnacle, which is what? Here's the real issue. 
It is idolatry. There's the problem. Our problem is with the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. That is our basic problem. We have all sorts of gods before God. We worship all sorts of things. Because of our state, our sinful condition, we elevate so many things, even things which might be good in and of themselves. And we grant them that position of preeminence and we adore them and our affections become inordinate. And what we worship begins to influence what? What we desire. What we desire dictates what? What we think. And what we think, sooner or later, we will act out with what we do. That is the road. Oh, it is a disgusting road. But it's the one Paul takes us down. Why does he focus on sexuality? He could have, he could have, he could have used so many different examples. Why sexuality? Because there is such a proneness to it. It, it is almost the pinnacle when you look at this heap of idolatry. It, 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 it almost eclipses all of them. That if you understand this, you'll have a basic understanding of what man's fundamental problem is. He is a worshiper. And he worships the wrong thing. And because of his idolatry, it leads to a corruption in terms of his desires. Passion, evil desire, covetousness. Because of this corruption of desires, it leads to a corruption of thoughts, impurity. And because of this corruption of thoughts, it leads to a corruption of deeds, sexual immorality. That's the first list. Put it to death. But he gives us a second list. Verse 8. But now you must put them all away. And we can divide these terms that he gives us in verse 8 into this first part of verse 9 into two categories. First, again, he deals with the realm of the heart. Anger. Wrath. Malice. And so he is probing the heart. Then he moves into a second category, speech. What comes out? Slander. Obscene talk. Into the ninth verse, deceit. And so in both of these lists, Paul is essentially making the same point. Sins. Yes, things we do. Transgressions. It's a big problem. Paul's point is this. It's not the biggest problem. And it actually isn't the root of the issue. The root of the issue is what resides within the realm of the heart, a depraved heart, a sinful heart, and a heart that is naturally inclined to worship anything other than God. Martin Lloyd-Jones penned it this way. Sins are nothing. Sins are nothing but the symptoms of a disease called sin. And it is not the symptoms that matter. They do matter, but they do not principally matter. It is the disease that matters. For it is the disease that kills, not the symptom. Now, if you've been with us the past month, uh, you thought I was finished with those three words, those three isms. I thought I was finished, but here they are again. What Paul is describing here, this is not legalism. Oh, Paul's starting to sound like a raving legalist. Commands, commands. I thought I was free in the Lord Jesus. Oh, you completely misunderstand the gospel. This is not legalism. Legalism is concerned with personal performance. The legalist thinks he can earn God's favor by personal performance. The legalist thinks that God's acceptance of him is based on what he does, how he performs. The legalist thinks he can arrive at peace with God on the basis of what he does. That's not Paul's thought process here. We start with the peace of God. 
We start with the fact that we are accepted by God in the Lord Jesus Christ. We begin with the fact that God accepts us not because we've obeyed. He accepts us because Christ has obeyed. God does not accept me because of my performance. He accepts me, praise God, because of Christ's performance. And when I realize that, what do I begin to realize? It it, it stirs in me a desire to do what? Get serious with my sin. That's Paul's logic here. That's his thought flow here. Do not label it legalism. Nor should this be confused with mysticism, right? The mystic is concerned with a personal experience. The mystic is off there thinking, what I need is another experience. If ever I'm going to be holy, I need to be zapped. I need something instantaneous. I need God to do something miraculous. I need an experience that will take me into another plane, another level, another stratosphere. And if only God would do something exceptional, if only God would do something extraordinary, then I would be able to deal with my sin. I'd be far more serious. That's not Paul's starting point here. Paul's starting point is what? You've already got everything you're going to get. You've already got everything you need. Everything we need for the power of godliness is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are one with the Lord Jesus Christ. The penalty of our sin has been paid. The power of our sin has been broken. This is not mysticism. Oh, I can, if, I, if, if only I had an experience, some sort of second blessing, third blessing, or are we on to the fourth or fifth blessing now? I can't remember. But something that will make me holy. That's not the road Paul goes down. You've already been blessed. You've got everything you're going to get. Now start obeying. That's where Paul goes down. Understand who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not mysticism. And this must not be confused with asceticism. The ascetic thinks what? Personal deprivation. My problem is my body. My problem is my physical senses. And if I can just deprive my body of such and such a thing, then all will be well. You see, the ascetic has misdiagnosed his problem. He thinks his problem resides in his body, the physical. Paul makes it clear here, no, 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 no. Yes, we sin in deeds, in actions we perform with our bodies, fair enough. But it's not the root of the problem. The problem is the heart. The problem is idolatry. The problem is willful, conscious disobedience of the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. What are we to mortify? That is what we are to mortify. That's Paul's point here. Get after it. That's the way Paul teaches holiness. It's rather unspectacular, isn't it? But there he says, almost downright boring. How, How... Normal. I mean, I mean you've got all these books on holiness out there now, seeking this, seeking that. Paul's point is simply this. Christian, do you understand who you are in Christ? Yes or no? Yes? Start acting like it. Well, that's kind of simple. It is simple. It is straightforward. Rehearse daily who you are in Christ Jesus. Past, present, future. Past, one with him in his crucifixion, his resurrection. Present, my life hidden with Christ in God. Future, when he appears, I'm going to be glorified. If I'm living in the reality of that daily, then Paul's point is simply this. Make it your practice. Live out what you already are in Christ Jesus. That is not legalism. That is not mysticism. And that is not asceticism. We know the what we're supposed to kill. Why kill it? There are a host of reasons given in Scripture. Paul hones in, zeroes his attention here on two incentives. First is found in verse 6. We can sum it up as follows. The wrath of God. Look at what he says there. 
on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Do you need any more incentive than that? God hates it. He hates idolatry. What do you think the Old Testament is? If you go back and you read the history of the nation of Israel and God's treatment of all the Canaanite nations and even God's treatment of Israel and judging Israel, sending Israel off into captivity, it was all a consequence of what? Idolatry. If the Old Testament teaches us anything, it teaches us this. God despises idolatry. You will have no other gods before me. And idolatry will be judged. That judgment will not be corrective. That judgment will be punitive. The wrath of God is coming. A day is appointed. I've quoted that verse so many times out of Romans chapter 2. Here it is again. Sinners, they are storing up for themselves what? Wrath for the day of judgment. Storing up in the Greek refers to what? Gradual accumulation. And so we have this dam. And it rains day after day after day. And the water increases and increases and increases. And suddenly the water overflows the dam. Maybe the dam even breaks and that water pours out. That is what Scripture declares. The day is coming. The day has been appointed. This is what God thinks of idolatry and all of its various manifestations and the sins and transgressions we commit. If we understand that, if if we think God's thoughts, there's all the incentive we need to kill. Because you see, we don't kill things we love. Isn't that true? We'll only kill something if we hate it. That's why many of us never get serious with our sin. Ooh, we're getting somewhere now. Why? Because we don't hate it enough. We'll only kill, put to death, what we hate. And we will only hate it when we see it as God sees it. If we do not grasp how odious sin is in God's sight, we won't grasp anything. There's the first reason, the first motivation, the first incentive. The second reason why is this. It takes us into verses 9 and 10. The image of God. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. Hmm, what's that? With its practices. And have put on the new self. Okay, now I'm really confused. What's that? Which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That is tricky. To understand it, we begin at the end. The image of its creator. The image of God. What is the image of God? That's tricky. Theologians historically, orthodox theologians, when it comes to the image of God, they have made a subtle yet very important distinction. They have differentiated on the one hand, let's put it over here, what we call the natural image of God. You got that? And then over here, what we're going to call, what many of them call, the moral image of God. Very simple. Image of God, what is it? Well, there's the natural image of God, and there is the moral image of God. The natural image of God, you go back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything. There is a progression. If Genesis 1 teaches us anything, it teaches us this. There is a progression in God's creation of the universe. It begins with lifeless matter, rocks. They're lifeless, right? It progresses to what? 
plants, plant life. And so plants, they germinate, they grow, they feed, right? And they propagate after their kind. That's plant life. And so the blue bonnets are going to all of a sudden bloom and blossom and grow here in a month's time. That's life, isn't it? Plant life. It is growing, it is increasing, it is feeding, and it is propagating after its kind. But there's a progression. God then creates animals. Well, animals are alive, but animals are kind of different from plants. So you have plant life, but now you also have animal life. And so animals, yes, they feed, they propagate after their kind, but they're different. Animals actually have senses. They can see, they can hear, they can taste. Uh, Animals actually have faculties. Our dogs remember things, don't they? Animals actually, to a certain extent, have emotions. Something like fear. Thunder yesterday, our dog, straight for cover. Fear. And so animal life is different from plant life. And then the progression, the climax, the pinnacle of God's creation in Genesis 1 is what? Adam and Eve, man and woman, created in his image. He breathed into Adam's nostrils and he became a living soul. And so there is something different about human life. Lifeless matter, plant life, animal life, human life. There's something about man that differentiates him humanity from the animals, from the plants. There is something whereby he is created in the image of God that actually reflects God. When we look at man, we actually see something about God. We learn something. We have entered the realm, the faculty of man's reason, his reason. Reason governing his affections, his love, his desire, his delight. A will responding in worship of God. Here we have the natural image of God. There is a moral image of God. It's based on Colossians 3.10. It's also based, the parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24. The moral image of God is this, summed up in three words. Knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And so Adam and Eve created in the image of God. The, the natural image, yes, reason, faculties, affections, will. Faculties, that is reason, affections, will, governed by the moral image of God. Knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And together this image of God mirrored, reflected, man reflected his creator. Adam and Eve fell. Adam and Eve sinned, rebelled. As a result, what happened? The image of God was corrupted. Man has lost the moral image of God. He has lost the knowledge of God. He has lost righteousness. He has lost holiness. His natural image has been corrupted. His mind, Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, is he is now darkened in his understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in him due to his hardness of heart. And so the moral image is gone. The natural image corrupted. This is the state of every human being subsequent to Adam and Eve. This is the state. If you're an unbeliever here, right now, that is your condition before God. Your condition before God can only be described and summed up in one word, death. You are a spiritual corpse. Please understand me, friend. You don't decide to believe in the Lord Jesus. You don't put on Jesus for a try. You don't decide to believe in Jesus. You are an unresponsive corpse. No knowledge, no holiness, no righteousness. 
and a mind that is darkened, a heart that is hardened, and a will that is enslaved. Do you know what you need? You need a miracle. You need a seismic miracle on the level of the original creation. You need the creator to create new life in you. You need a resurrection whereby he unites you by the Spirit to his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whereby you become one with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. When that happens, what happens? The image of God is it's renewed. We're born against a new birth. That's regeneration. All of a sudden, that natural image, the mind was darkened. All of a sudden, as a Christian, I understand things I never understood before. Eyes to see, ears to hear. Things make sense that were absolute stupidity as far as I was concerned before. All of a sudden, there, there, there is love for God. There's a desire for God, whereas I was just chasing after this, that, and the next thing before. And now suddenly, my enslaved will is free to obey God, to serve God, to do His will. And what is renewed, Paul emphasizes it here, being renewed in knowledge. Because knowledge was lost. In Ephesians 4, he emphasizes holiness and righteousness. That these things are now being renewed. The starting point was regeneration. And so Paul's point is this, backing up in verse 10. Look, you have put off the old self. All that you were in Adam. Your corruption in Adam. And your darkened mind. Your spiritual ignorance. And your distorted and twisted affections and your enslaved will, your idolatry. All you were in Adam, you have put off. And now you have put on the new self. You are now in Christ. That is who you are. The old has been put off by virtue of the fact that you are one with Christ in his death, his burial, and resurrection. All that you were in Adam is put put off. All that you are now in Christ has been put on. You have started on this journey of spiritual renewal, which will culminate in glorification. And Paul's point is this. Why should you obey this commandment? Why should you put to death sin? Friend, you need to understand who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Understand that as one of His chosen ones, you are being renewed in the very image of God. And now you are to devote yourself, you are to endeavor to resemble God as much as you can. Wow. You are to resemble God as much as you can in the pursuit of holiness, in the pursuit of righteousness. That's why we are to obey this command. The wrath of God, that's number one, verse six. The image of God, that's number two, verse ten. It leaves us with a remaining third question. How, how, how in particular? Let me get down to the specifics. How are we to do this? I think the first starting point for many of us is this. We need to stop making excuses. I need to stop. I'll speak for me. I need to stop making excuses. This is a command. Christian, understand. God does not command His people to do anything they cannot do. I'm going to repeat that. God does not command His people to do anything they cannot do. 
Now, let me qualify that. Not on our own strength, but because he has given us everything we need by virtue of our union with Christ. Hear what Paul says in his epistle to the Philippians. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So you're saved, Christian. Now work it out. Live it out. Work out. Live out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We're able to work out what God has already worked in. Let me repeat it. We are able to work out what God has already worked in. We need to stop making excuses. That's the starting point. The second thing is this, and what Paul emphasizes in these verses, and the terminology he uses, is this process of putting off, putting on. Yes, positionally, we've done that once for all because we're one with Christ. His point is now, now put into practice what you already are. Be what you already are in life. Be it as what you already are in Christ as you live out what you are in Christ. Be it, practice it, do it, walk it. And he uses this, this terminology of putting on, putting off, and it's the idea of a garment. And so we got up this morning, we put off our PJs, we put on the clothes we're wearing now. Maybe we put on a jacket, it was a little chilly, we got here, we took off that jacket. If it's still chilly when we leave here, we'll put the jacket back on, we'll get home, we'll take the jacket off. We might decide to take off, put off the clothes we're wearing, put on different clothes. When it comes time to go to bed tonight, we're going to put off our clothes, we're going to put on our PJs. And on and on and on and on it goes. That's Paul's point here. That is how you're to live life as a Christian. You're putting off, you're putting on, you're putting off, you're putting on, you're putting off, you're putting on. And you do it every day of your life never stops. Every day we put off the old self. Every day we disrobe ourselves, if you like, of what we were in Adam. As we're being renewed in the image of God and we put on, it's coming next week in verse 12, all that we already are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Putting off, putting on. How specifically? Let me give you just a few points here. Summing up these verses and extracting a few ideas from other places in the book of Colossians. The following. Number one, cultivate hatred for sin. That's how I put it off. I put it off by cultivating hatred for it. And I hate it because it robs me of my greatest treasure, which is enjoyment with God. I put it off by reflecting, this goes back to verse 6, on the punishment my sin deserves. So how can I play fast and loose with sin when I consider it is the object of God's eternal wrath? Thirdly, identify my proneness to sin. There are certain idols I am prone to. There are certain idols I just naturally, effortlessly gravitate toward. I need to identify them, get serious with them. Before I guard against all occasions that lead to temptation. What gets me going? What is it that excites that idolatry? What is it that tempts me? I cut myself off from it. Number five, I refuse to concede any ground to sin. Oh, it's like the Paluxy when it does rain. Was it last year, last spring? We got some, no, I think it was a couple of years ago. We had a couple of big storms. And do you remember the Paluxy there as it went through town, just spilled over its banks, covered the walkway there and covered big rocks and everything else? That's what like, sin is like. If we give it, give it any room, it breaks out of its channel. And once it breaks out of its channel, good luck getting it back in, brother. Oh, away it goes. And it just does whatever it wants. The first stirring of sins, we need to nip it at its origin. Refuse to concede any ground to sin. Next, we must meditate upon God's incomparable greatness. 
And finally, and above all, brings us full circle in this text. Christian, remember what it means daily, 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 daily. Remember what it means to be in Christ. Past, present, future. Oh, remember, Christ loves his church, his bride. Despite her unworthiness, oh, you are altogether beautiful, my darling. And there is no blemish in you. He loves his church. He loves his bride. He loves his people. He cherishes her as his own body. And here is a wonderful thought. The Lord Jesus will not be satisfied until the church is perfect. We sing this hymn often here. I'll conclude with this. From heaven, he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood, he bought her. And for her life, he died. That's how we put sin to death. We never get over Christ's love for us. We never get over Christ's love for his bride. We never get over the spilling of his blood to purchase us, our life for which he died. We never get over this wonderful truth that he has come. He has found her with only one goal in view that we might be his holy bride. Live there daily. Bask in those truths daily and obey the commandment of the Lord. Put to death sin by putting off the old and putting on the new. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you because it is by your word that Christ sanctifies the church. We pray that you would impart to us understanding, that we would see that in your word, all of your commands, all of your promises, all of your threats, all of your blessings, they are orchestrated, they are formed with this great purpose, this great end in view, our holiness, that we might be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus that we might be more like the one who loved us, gave himself up for us, sought us, found us, and made us one with himself by the Holy Spirit. O Father, give us understanding, an understanding that resides deep within. Give us lives that are brought into conformity with these great truths. And as Paul prayed all those centuries ago, fill us, we pray, with the knowledge of your will with all spiritual wisdom and understanding that we might truly walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work. Hear our prayers, we beg of you. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray.